It's so nice to see all of you out today for a beautiful Easter Sunday. The title of the message sounds a little strange, I know, but I hope at the end of the message you will understand why I gave the title, When It Makes Sense to Bury the Dead. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord who was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. I believe in the resurrection of the body. Since the second century after the death and resurrection of Christ, Christians have recited the Apostles' Creed and the words, I believe in the resurrection of the body. Belief in the resurrection of the body is a foundation stone upon which our Christian hope is built. However, when we begin to explore our belief in the resurrection of the body, we are often troubled as we struggle to conceptualize and understand the resurrection of an actual body, a body that has died, decomposed, or been consumed by fire or some other process. Such troubling thoughts might cause us to think twice about how we would answer questions that sometimes are thrown at us as believers in the resurrection. Like, do you really believe Jesus will one day raise from this earth the body you are living in at this very moment? Do you really believe Jesus will raise the body of your grandmother or your grandfather who were buried years ago? Do you really believe Jesus will raise the body of a loved one who was recently cremated? This is no question. There's no question you believe Jesus, and I believe Jesus, will raise our bodies from this earth that will be raised with some kind of body that he makes and presents us for eternity. But do we really believe there is any kind of relationship between the body that was buried or cremated or consumed with the body that will be recreated for life in his eternal heaven? Any kind of relationship apart from the fact that they may look a little bit alike. Or perhaps like some people... Maybe we've never given it a whole lot of thought because we've never really lost somebody close to us in death. And I know that some of us, many of us that are younger here today, I guess I shouldn't include myself in that category, that maybe you haven't experienced a death of a loved one. There are undoubtedly, and this is a number, slide number four, there are undoubtedly many Christians who fervently believe in the resurrection of every person who possesses eternal life, but who may have difficulty relating the resurrection body with the body we lived in on earth and which has long since decomposed, been cremated, or consumed in some other manner. In our enlightened and skeptical world today, there is a tendency to disassociate 
this body from the body that will one day be raised. For others of us, who may not be as theologically precise, who perhaps have been more prompted by Hollywood, books, comics, and even ideas we embraced as children, it seems easier to believe that our Lord will create some kind of new, angelic, ghost-like, superbody, complete with wings, that is more surreal than real, and apart from appearance, totally unrelated to the body we are living in at this moment. In the days of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul faced the same kind of confusion and difficulty in the church at Corinth. There was a great deal of chaotic thinking in the church that was stirred up by false teachers who gave a little Christian, a little Christian twist to the philosophy, the Greek philosophy of the immortality of the soul in which they regarded everything that was material as evil, including the body. For these highly respected teachers... To think a human body could come out of the, of the grave was utter foolishness. A decomposed body come back to life? Ridiculous. Foolish. Come on, Paul. Why would God go to the trouble to raise up a, a decaying body from this earth? He's got the blueprints. Just make a new one. How is such a body, decayed and mingled with the soil, going to be raised back to life? What kind of body are you talking about, Paul? It's absurd. It makes no sense. Certainly to us Greeks that are more enlightened than the Hebrews that you come from. Is it reasonable to believe in a resurrection of this, of this earthly body from the dead? And if so, how is that body raised? What kind of body are we talking about? Is it a body existing in the mind of God? A sort of mental blueprint that he has of all of us? Or is it a ghost-like body? A body you can't feel or touch? A body that is like a shadow or a hologram of the body we're living in right now? Remember where you used to go to the Disneyland and you'd take the haunted house ride and there'd be all these holograms of faces and people. And people, that's what it's going to be like. Right? That's what a lot of people think. Is that what we're talking about? Are we talking about a real body? And if we mean real body, what do we mean by real? The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 15 basically to answer a lot of questions about the resurrection. But in verses 35 to 49, he sought to answer these questions that we've been talking about at this very moment. These questions that were leaving a lot of Christians really confused and disoriented when it came to their belief in the resurrection of the dead. I'd like for you to follow with me as we read this portion of Scripture together. It's written out for you on your note sheet. 
if you uh, would like, or there's Bibles in the back of the pew, or if you remember to bring your Bible, we encourage you just to follow along as we read this together. We'll also have it on the screen behind me. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow the body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is the glory of the sun and the glory of the moon. There is the glory of another glory of stars, and for the star differs from one star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in honor. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man Adam gave became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. The Apostle Paul opens this portion of Scripture with two questions that he imagines the skeptics asking, the people that were sort of mocking him and his belief in the resurrection. The questions he imagined them asking are, someone will say, how were the dead raised up? And then the other question is, and with what body do they come? Now, Paul wants to address these two questions, only he reverses them. He's going to take the second question first and answer that, and then the first question last and answer that one. So you can take these two questions and actually build an outline around these verses that we're looking at this morning around these two questions. The first question is, and with what body do they come? Verses 31, 35 to verse 41. They come with a body related to the one that was sown. There is a relationship, a correspondence between the body that is raised and the body that, was, that has died. Second, he says, how are the dead raised up? Verses 42 to 49, he answers that question. In these verses, Paul shares four things which will distinguish this body which has been raised from the body that has been buried. Now, I want you to invite you just to sort of follow along this morning as we explore the Apostle Paul's answers to these very important questions, questions that I would assume that even a non-believer may have some interest in. Because one thing we all share in common, whether we're believers or not, is that we one day are going to die. And the Bible says that one day we will all be raised, some to a resurrection of righteousness and eternity with God in heaven, and some to a resurrection of damnation. We're not going to be talking about the resurrection of damnation this morning. We're talking about the resurrection of the believer, a resurrection to righteousness. He begins with the question, 
First, and with what body do they come? They come with a body related to the one that was sown. There is a relationship, a correspondence between the body that was raised and the body that was sown. That is a fundamental principle taught in the scriptures. Notice, verse 36. Foolish one, what you have sown is not made alive unless it dies. In verse 36, Paul, Paul refers to his objectors, these mockers who are giving him a hard time as Foolish ones, the word literally means no mind. You're the ones without a mind here. You're not using your head. Observe something so ordinary as a stalk of wheat or the stem of a budding flower. How did it get there? A tiny seed that you can barely see died and was planted. And in that soil it decomposed. And out of that death there came a fruitful grain or a beautiful flower. Every field that we see in our country filled with grain, waving grain of barley and wheat and oats and tall stalks of corn. All of that started with a beautiful but dead little seed. And his point is, it's a testimony to the fact that the resurrection body is related to the body that dies. Because all that potential, all that beauty, started from just a tiny little seed that was planted in the ground, and it decomposed, and in the process it germinated and brought forth life. And still today, scientists can't tell you why it happens. They can explain to us how it happens in part, but they can't tell us why it happens. One of those mysteries, just like the very fact that we exist is a mystery that no one has ever solved apart from God. It just happens. A seed dies, is carefully buried, and a new living plant body rises up from the soil. Without the seed being sown, there would be no plant body, no seed, no body. Furthermore, as we gaze on those fields, Paul says, think about something else which speaks about the body that is raised in relation to the body that is sown. It is a body that is related, but also a body that is radically different from the body that was sown. The resurrection body is not a body that has been resuscitated by the breath of God. For example... The earthly body of Jesus was not resuscitated by the power of God, but miraculously and radically transformed into a resurrection body fit for eternity. Verse 37, Paul says, And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. We don't sow the head of the stock. We don't sow the stock itself. We don't sow the flower. We sow a bare, a bare, indistinguishable seed that looks like, for the most part, most seeds. There's just slight variations and slight differences. They look sort of alike. And yet once those seeds are planted into the ground, they bring something forth that is radically transformed into a stalk of corn or wheat or barley or oats 
or a beautiful flower. Our human bodies are like seeds. When we die, all of us sort of look alike, roughly speaking. And as the process of decomposition takes place over decades and centuries, we look a lot more alike. But for those bodies that have been sown, even though they look alike, God says, I'm going to bring forth, with my miraculous power, I'm going to bring forth something, a radically changed resurrection body. A body that is transformed, a body that is fit for eternity and for my eternal purposes. Now that may be a hard concept to grasp. How can God take a body that has been decomposing for years so that it becomes mingled with the soil so that you couldn't tell the soil from the body? Or how could God take the ashes of someone that has been cremated and they've disintegrated into the air or into the ocean and bring something out of that? I can't follow this, Arch. There's, there's, there's a disconnect here. I'd like you to think about two laws of physics. They're called the first and second laws of thermodynamics. And I think they may help us understand such potential. The first law says there is no new matter being created or destroyed. All the matter that existed in the beginning of creation still exists. There's nothing new being added or lost from our universe. The second law says that as matter is changed into a different state, say from a solid piece of wood to a gas as a result of being burned, that matter becomes less available for use in sustaining an orderly universe. In short, the universe is running down toward disorder. However, that matter that was a piece of wood and has now been changed into a different state of heat and gas still exists, albeit in a different state, which is less usable to us, but certainly not less usable to God. A horrible accident of war. Or an act of war. Or a horrible accident is what I meant to say. May totally destroy a body so that there's nothing left. Or someone may choose to be cremated. But clearly the matter that made that body what it was before it died was not really lost in the sense that it no longer exists. It may be unretrievable to us, according to the second law of thermodynamics, but it's clearly not unretrievable to God. It may have decomposed in the soil or disintegrated into the atmosphere or be laying on the bottom of the ocean, but God is certainly able to retrieve that matter that was once my body or your body. In the book of Revelation 20, verse 15, it speaks about the sea giving up its dead. A clear statement that regardless of where the body ends up, and in that day and age, the worst thing was to have a body end up on the bottom of the ocean because it was impossible to ever think about how it could be retrieved. And the Bible is saying God will retrieve it. Thoughts may go through your mind about how unretrievable a body is, 
God can retrieve it. The matter is still there. Certainly if man can clone a physical body from a single cell, is it beyond reason to believe that God can make a radically new body fit for eternity from the material seed of my physical body which was planted in this earth? Paul continues, verse 38. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. A corn, barley, or wheat seed, again, may look alike or very similar, but God has established physical laws and chemical processes whereby what is coming forth from that seed will be related to the seed that was sown. If it was a corn seed, what will come forth will not be a stalk of wheat or a grain of wheat. It will be a stalk of corn. Each one is related to the seed that was planted. The seed comes forth from the seed comes forth one kind of body or another. Likewise, God's people, when sown in death, will come forth with a completely new kind of body, a resurrected body, but one related to the body that was planted. A body reformed and refashioned from the very material that once defined our human form and substance. And now a resurrection body has been formed, equipped by God for life in His world. Beyond our three-dimensional world that we live in. A body that's very different from the body we put in the grave. It is different in that it's arranged differently. Different in that it that it appears in glory differently. Different in that it appears different. Yet it is connected to the body, the body that is sown. Verse 39, Paul drives home these thoughts. He says, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there's one kind of flesh of men, another of flesh of animals, and another of fish, and another of birds. Look at the animal kingdom, he says. Bodies are arranged differently. The body of a fish is different from the body of a bird. And the body of a bird is different from the body of a, of a bear. And the body of a bear is different from the body of a human being. They're arranged differently so that they can live in their various realms. We can't live in the sea. We can put on scuba deer and go down and crawl around for a while, but we've got to come back up. That's not our element. We have bodies fit for what world we live in. That's what he's saying. Likewise with those God raises up. They were buried in material body. They will be raised up in material body, but the material will be retransformed, reshaped, refigured for life in a new realm, the eternal realm. He goes on to talk about different bodies and how they function. He says there are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. Look at the bodies in the universe. Look at the earth and the moon and the stars and the sun. They're all different. Some are more glorious than others. They shine brighter. They seem bigger. Look up and see all the bodies 
around us that they not only differ in composition but in glory. While our physical body can barely be seen 500, mile, 500 yards away, there are stars that can be seen by more than 500 billion light years away. Those bodies are different. All around us we see bodies that differ in the way they're arranged and the way they appear. Is it unreasonable to believe that a resurrection body could be differently arranged and appear differently and yet have the material matter, a material or matter relationship to what was sown in the ground? From the seed of our human physical bodies to a glorious resurrection body. That's what he's saying here in this first part of this section of 1 Corinthians 15. Which leads us to the next question. The second question. How are the dead raised up? Verses 42 to 49. In these verses, Paul shares four things which will distinguish the body which has been raised from the body that was buried. And his point is, the body that is raised greatly excels the body that has been sown or planted. First, the body that is raised excels the one that is sown in that the body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. What's it mean to be sown in corruption? The word corruption literally means waste away, ruin, or perishable, subject to decay and destruction. Normally when we bury someone, we believe that they are resting, that they're at peace, that they're going to be undisturbed. But in reality, there are all kinds of microorganisms that invade the body and begin to break it down. Whether it's buried in the dry climate of Arizona or in the moist climate of the Midwest, it's still being broken down over time. The elaborate embalming processes of the Egyptians, the ancient Egyptians, could not prevent disintegration from within the body itself. Corruption and decay and rot, it never stops. Even the bones over time will break down. I'm sure King Tut would not be pleased with his appearance today, although he received the best embalming job known at the time. It is raised, however, in incorruption. That is, it is radically changed so that it can never be destroyed. No accident, no disease, no microorganism, no chemical, no fire, no element can ever, ever bring about the destruction of the resurrection body. That's the difference. The body that is sown in the ground will be rotted and destroyed by decomposition, but the body that is raised and brought out of the ground will never be destroyed by anything ever, ever, ever. That's the difference. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Second, Paul says, the body that is raised excels the one that is sown in that. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in dishonor. At a funeral, there is respect and dignity that is normally paid. Appreciation for the life that was lived. There is love that is shared, but as much as we pay our respects and show our appreciation for that life that was lived, as you look down into the casket, there's no honor. That's because the battle has been lost. That person that's laying there motionless and lifeless has waged a battle and has lost 
that battle. Defeat and sadness are the mark of those who've lost the battle and those who've watched a person lose the battle. There's no honor in defeat. And a corpse is a defeated person. It's dust to dust and ashes to ashes. And whether a person has been dead for 30 years or 3,000 years, eventually that body will decompose and return to the dirt and the soil. And that's what it means to be sown in dishonor. But Paul goes on and he says, but it will be raised in honor and in glory. That word raised in honor and glory, the word means brightness and magnificence and splendor. The resurrection is one in which a person is raised victoriously as a conqueror over death. In the ancient world, the conquerors would go forth on horses and they would have a, a splendor about them. And you would see they'd been victorious in battle. The resurrection body will have that kind of splendor that will send forth a message, the battle has been won. So the resurrection body comes forth out of death, a victorious body. Body that was sown like seed. It dies and it decomposes in the death of the soul, but then out of that comes forth the life, the resurrection life, the resurrection body that is brilliant and splendor, shining and spectacular more than any flower that has ever been created and brought forth out of the soil of this world. Third, Paul says the body that was raised or that will be raised excels the one that is sown in that it is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in weakness. The word weakness here is often translated disease or sickness. Death is the ultimate sickness, the ultimate disease. What does disease and sickness tend to do? It tends to immobilize us. If we get a mild case of the flu, what happens? We end up on our back, coughing and hacking. We can't go out and do all the things we did. We're confined to a bed. And we mope around until it passes. Disease and sickness immobilize us. And if we have a mild case of the flu, it passes. But if we get seriously sick with a, a heart attack or a failing heart, or multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's disease or something like that, part of our body actually begins to die in the sense that it becomes immobilized. If you have a heart attack, the thing they're concerned about most is that part of the heart dies. And you have less heart to work with to sustain the body. It becomes immobilized. In death, every muscle, every fiber of the body is totally immobilized when death actually occurs. A fleeting image of what it once was. There's nothing you and I can do about it. The only processes that remain after we die are the processes of decay. However, it is raised in power. The resurrection body is a body that's full of vitality, full of strength. Even the strongest man in the world will not be able to compare his body to the body that will be raised. Fourth, the body that is raised excels the one that is sown in that it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. It's sown a natural body. The word natural describes the principle that keeps the body alive, our body, right at this very moment, alive. It describes the realm in which we interact. 
The natural body is kept alive and it interacts with the natural realm. The word natural in the language of the Greek, Greek language here approximates our word physical. The body was sown a natural body, a physical body, and it's kept alive by physical processes. That's why in the Bible, the blood is such a central part of what is described as human life. There's so much emphasis in the Bible on the blood as being the life of the body because the blood carries oxygen. It carries nutrients. It carries all the elements of the physical world that, need, that we need in our body to stay alive. And so that blood is critical to our existence. Our physical bodies cannot exist without blood and without those elements being carried to us by the blood. The blood is the key. It enables us to interact with the world about us. Also, the senses that we have, the five senses that we have, are senses that enable us to experience this world. I can smell the lovely flowers. I can see the beautiful mountain. I can hear the singing. I can taste the good food. The hearing, the smell, the sight. All these senses are designed to interact with the physical world. That's what it means to be sown a physical body or a natural body. The ultimate place in which the natural body interacts with the natural realm is in the grave. Because it's there it's integrating with the soil from which it was taken originally. On the other hand, we read, Paul says it is raised a spiritual body. The body is raised a spiritual body. And this is where a lot of people lose it, friends. Because they, oh, the word spiritual, ghost body. He's not talking about a cast for the ghost here. The word spiritual does not mean ghost. The new body that is brought out of the grave will be alive. It will be a material body. Material body. Spiritual and material are not at odds. It's spiritual and natural that are at odds. There's a huge difference. Jesus told his disciples that his resurrected body was not ghost-like, but made of flesh and bone, but not blood and decaying flesh and bone. Because there's a different principle keeping the body of Jesus Christ alive, even at this very moment. It does not depend upon blood running through his body at this moment. It does not depend upon blood carrying oxygen and nutrients and the elements of the physical world to him. It is being kept alive by spiritual principles, spiritual elements that we don't know much about. But this new body... This resurrected body will interact with the spiritual realm. It's not a ghost. That's not what he's saying. It's not a spirit body. It's a real body, but it is a body able to relate to the spiritual realm. In the book of Hebrews 12, the author writes of Christians, or two Christians, about the future they will experience in their resurrected bodies. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels and festal gathering. They're having a party. And you've come to that and you'll be able to take part in that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul speaks about being caught up into the third heaven and hearing 
which he called paradise, and hearing words that are inexpressible to us that he couldn't utter. The Apostle John in Revelation 21 described the new heavens and the new earth and the heavenly Jerusalem. His description is literally out of this world. You can read it for yourself in those passages. We call it heaven. The point is clear. The resurrected body we call home one day will also be able to fully experience all that heaven has to offer. The myriads of angels and festal gathering, the inexpressible words and sights. We will see it and hear it and sense these things that we've never seen and heard or experienced before. We will have senses that will go way beyond the five senses that we have right now. We'll be able to sense things that we've never sensed before, friends. You say, well, I have a hard time with this. I do not believe such a world exists. Let me ask you this. Right now there's a viral bacterial world that if we had the right eyes, we could see it. However, without a microscope, all we can do is imagine it. The comic book help, the fungus under our toes, we can't see it. We can see the results of it. The world of microbes is a world we cannot see, feel, or touch. But we all know it's there. Friends, the spiritual world is there as well. A world we cannot see, yet the Bible says that God has sent angels to minister to everyone that is a believer in Jesus Christ. And people laugh. Why are we so arrogant as to believe that there aren't angels? Spirit beings. Not immaterial beings, but beings that have bodies that are spiritually powered. Why is it such a joke? Are we so arrogant as to think that this is it? That there's nothing else? With our limited ears and with our limited vision as we age, are we so limited in our understanding as to believe that there's more out there? than meets the eye. Yes, we are. Unless we have, like Scripture says, been born again by God's Spirit. And once we are born again, once we have received eternal life, we begin to sense that there's more to life. The more we read God's Word, the more we become aware that there's a world out there that we don't know much about learning more and more all the time. And one day, we'll have bodies to be able to fully interact with that world. Again, the Apostle Paul emphasizes there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. How does the spiritual body excel the natural body? In short, he concludes by telling us to look at the resurrected body of Christ in whose image we will one day be conformed. He says this, and so it is written, the first Adam, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Adam, that is Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the dust, man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. As is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. We shall bear the image of the heavenly man, and that is Jesus Christ. What does Paul mean by that? 
What is he saying? Is that we will be bearing the image of the Lord Jesus Christ himself in terms of his physical body, of his, of his spiritual body. We have his life already. The moment you put your faith in Christ, you have eternal life. That's his gift to you. But one day we're told that you're going to have a spiritual body like his. Is that a ghost body? No, Jesus made it very clear it's not a ghost body. A quick study of the body of Jesus will, in, will emphasize several things that we heard this morning. He says, it's not a ghost body. He says, here, touch me. Flesh and blood. I don't have flesh, but you can sense that I have material substance. You can touch me and feel me. At first, you read that they weren't sure it was Jesus. There was something about him that seemed familiar, but there was also something about him that seemed otherworldly, a glory that they couldn't see, but it, there was identity there. He kept telling them, I'm a real person. Give me something to eat. Let me have something to eat and I'll show you that I can digest this food and I can eat it and enjoy it with you. This is a real body, Jesus was saying. And he's saying it's going to be like the body you're going to one day have as well. There'll be identity there, friends. When we get this body that's going to be raised up, we're going to look at one another, and you're probably going to say, Arch, is that you? I can't believe it. You've got a 32-inch waist. Seriously, there'll be something about us that will make us look different, glorious, but there'll be something there that, that identifies us. It's like my son used to sit in church and he'd write these, he'd do all these curature drawings of me and of others. But I mean, you know, the big lips or whatever it is you had, he accentuated it. I don't know what God's going to do with this body, but somehow the body we receive, there will be an attachment, an identity with the body that was that it came from the one that was sown. And lastly, he says, in addition to this not being a ghost-like body, it's a real body, he says, this body will be able to enjoy pleasures that we've enjoyed in this life. Good food, good fellowship, good times, great adventure, meaningful work, fulfilling lives, a sense of significance, exuberance, joy. The list could go on. So often people come up and say, Arch, are we going to be able to play golf and ride motorcycles when we get to heaven? Play games? Uh, go on, that's for you. Well, I won't mention it. I would guess, yeah, we could. But the real question is, will we want to? As adults, how many of us here want to go back and ride tricycles? I want to ride a Harley. I don't want to ride a tricycle. How many of us as adults want to go back and play Piggly Wiggly. Most of us would like something a little more challenging to our minds. The point is that we're going to have different bodies, friends. And the things that we're able to enjoy will far supersede anything that we've ever done in this world, including playing golf and riding motorcycles and gardening and all the things that we like to do. And that's not to say those things are wrong while we're in these bodies. But once we're out of these bodies, man... It's 
all holds, the whole ball of wax is opened up to us. A new world, indeed. Second, Jesus was showing his people, the disciples, and to us, it's going to be a body that will be radically different. It will have powers that will defy our explanation. I believe our speculations would be woefully short. But one thing, however, would be clear, we'll be clear about this body, it will be immortal. Doctors today are working. Bob Wilkin brought this out in a quote that's on the screen. The doctors have been working, trying to figure out how they can keep us alive longer. Let's suppose, for instance, that they can, they can give us new arms, new hearts, new minds, new brains, new everything, and just keep us going indefinitely. They still, we still got to deal with the pain and the doctors and the nurses and all that goes in to dealing with this body. And what God has to offer is so much better. It's immortality in the sense that we'll never know those things again. It is vitally important to our Christian life and health that we understand and believe in the resurrection of the body. Now the question comes, how can we keep this vital teaching before us? Of course, we can continue to reference it in the scripture. But one day, most of us here are going to face the death of a loved one. Maybe even our own death. And we're going to have an opportunity to speak out. And I'm going to make a suggestion. Contrary to the trend of our day and in contrast to the culture we live in, it seems to make a lot of sense. We want to just sort of get rid of anything that smacks of death. If we see a dead body in California, it's like, it's like throngs of people running the other direction. It just doesn't fit the California lifestyle. But I'd like to suggest that as believers we have an opportunity to make a statement in how we care for that seed because that's what our bodies are. They're seed. Now, if I'm a gardener and I have some seed and I want to plant that seed, how do I do it? Do I just toss it into the fire and hope to get a flower? Do I just blow it into space and hope to get, you know, something that I can use? No. I think we have an opportunity, even if we cremate a body, that we ought to take that remains, whatever remains, and we need to plant it in the ground carefully. And that is a statement that we believe that that seed that we planted in the ground is one day going to come forth, a resurrected body. Clearly, God can bring a body from anywhere, any place. Someone has been unfortunate to have been consumed in an accident. God will bring their body back. That's not the point here. The point is an opportunity for us as Christians to make a statement. A statement that says, I believe in the resurrection of the body. And I'm carefully planting this body in the ground. Because I believe it's the seed that God will take and from it bring forth a new body raised with powers and splendor and glory that's beyond anything I've ever, ever thought about. We were recently studying the book of Acts. And the, you recall the story of Stephen, the martyr. The Jews were so upset with him, they were throwing stones at him and burying him. And finally, 
just as he was about to die, he looks up in heaven, he sees the Lord Jesus, and he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And immediately he dies, and his spirit goes to be with the Lord Jesus and all the people that heard him. Immediately we read that there are two men that ran up and immediately took his body and went out and buried his body. Now he's with the Lord Jesus, and the Bible says that when we die, our spirit goes immediately to be with the Lord. But they took his body out and they buried his body because they wanted to make sure that a statement was driven home to the Christian community and to the non-Christian community as well as we believe in the resurrection of the body because we believe in Jesus Christ and he is risen. He is risen indeed. A little over a year ago, my wife and I stood in front of my father-in-law's open casket at a funeral for him. And as we went up there to the casket, she put her hand on his hand. She says, I know he's not here. He's with the Lord. And I said, you're right. But the body we're looking at right now is the seed that God is going to use. And he's going to bring this body out of the grave. A new resurrected body one day. There's a correspondence there between the two. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the life he gives us. As he's told us clearly that if we believe in him, we shall never die. But our spirit lives on forever in eternity, eternal life. But we are also told, Lord, that one day... He's going to bring forth our body from the grave and our spirit will be reunited with our body and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. How we thank you for this blessed hope in Jesus' name. Amen. To close, uh, we're going to sing hymn number 358, uh, Because He Lives. That's uh, number 358. We're going to do uh, the first and the last. God sent his son. They called him Jesus. He came to
Thank you for coming. And we wish you a glorious Easter day and a wonderful Resurrection Sunday in which we focus on the resurrection of our Savior. Our Father, we thank you again for this time together. We pray your continued blessing upon us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Good day. God bless you. Well, congratulations. Hi, Rebecca.